Well, today we're going to be back in the book of Romans. And um, before we get there, though, I want to share with you the ABCs of being a father. It's up there on the screen, I think, or it will be. Uh, A, always trust them to God's care. Bring them to church. Challenge them to high goals. Delight in their achievements. Exalt the Lord in their presence. Frown on evil. Give them love. Hear their problems. Ignore not their childish fears. Joyfully accept their apologies. Keep their confidence. Live a good example before them. Make them your friends. Never ignore their endless questions. Some of you know what that's like. (laughs) Open your home to their visits. Pray for them by name. Quicken your interest in their spirituality. Remember their needs. Show them the way of salvation. Teach them to work. Understand they are young. Verify your statements. Wean them from bad company. Expect them to obey and yearn for God's best for them and then zealously guide them in biblical truth. I think that last one is the most important of all those to raise up our children in a way that would be honoring to the Lord. Well, we've seen the Apostle Paul's heart as we're trying to get out of the book of Romans here. And uh, this morning we're going to focus in on verse 20 through 27, but we're probably going to look at verse 20. And it says there, you can follow along in your Bibles as you open to Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 20. Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sopater, my kinsmen. Itertius wrote this letter, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been looking at Paul's heart. We saw his unifying heart. We saw a satisfied heart, his bold heart, his ministering heart, his glorifying heart, his missionary heart, his planning heart, his praying heart, his giving heart, his loving heart. Last week, we looked at his protective heart, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about that in just a way of review. He, he warned us about two specific things. He warned us about those who creep into the church who cause division, who cause division. And he also warned us about those who put obstacles in our way. And uh, we refer to people like that as wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in looking, saying they're one thing, but really they're another And uh, we looked at their motivation. Why do they do these things? We looked at their methodology. And Paul, basically, at the end of last week, I shared three protective measures that we need to take as a church. And the first one was in verse 17 where he says, Watch out for those who cause divisions. In other words, you have to be alert. 
You have to be alert. You can't just be naive. Secondly, he says, keep away from them in verse 17 as well. People who teach doctrine that is not in accord with God's word are not to be embraced. They're just not. That's a hard message for a lot of people today because they focus on God is love and, you know, aren't we just supposed to all hug and sing kumbaya together? Well, for those true believers, that's true. But there are those who have crept into the midst of the church who are not believers at all. They're claiming to be believers, but they teach doctrines that are opposed to what the Word of God has for us. And sometimes they're very slight. Sometimes you have to be careful. Sometimes, you know, you can hear someone speak and, you know, 85% of what they said is, boy, that's right on. But then they, they slip in a little error. And most of the times they do so knowingly. The Bible says keep away from them. You don't embrace people like that. That doesn't mean you be rude to them. We're always to exhibit the love of Christ and be gracious but we're not to bend. We're not to change the message that God has given us in the gospel of Christ in order to win the approval of men. That's not our calling. We're not, I use this illustration all the time, we're not the cook. We're just the waiter. We're, we're going to the, the kitchen, we're picking up the meal, and we're delivering it to the table. If the patron eats it and doesn't like it, it's not really my problem. It's the cook's problem. And so many times, we have ministers of God who pick up God's meal for us in the kitchen, and as they're taking it to the table, they say, "Ah, this might be a little too harsh. I think I'm going to change this and change that and move this over there and move that there. And by the time it gets to the table, it has no resemblance of what God initially cooked or wrote in the Word of God. And so when people do that, we're to stay away from them. And then thirdly, we said we have to be wise about what is good, he says in verse 19, and innocent about what is evil. Jesus used this when he said, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves in Matthew chapter 10. You know, we're not to be naive about our faith especially. And so this is all good advice Because the Bible says that in the end times, there's going to be people saying, hey, here's a Christ, there's a Christ, everywhere, Christ, Christ, you know, and what do we do with that? Do we believe them? Do we embrace them? No, the Bible says that we do not do that. And that leads us here to verse 20. And I was hoping to finish this out today, but when I looked at verse 20, I thought there is is so much important information here that we need to cover We're going to take the time to do it. He says there, the God of peace, listen to this, will soon crush Satan under your feet. When I read that, the one thing that jumped out to me is that, you know what, we live in a materialistic world, don't we? I mean, we have houses, we have cars, we have clothes, we have all those things, but we also live in a spiritual world. And sometimes we forget about the spiritual world because we can't see it. We see the effects of it, but we don't often see it. Our world around us is secular. It's materialistic. It it basically focuses on only what can be touched or felt. And in a lot of modern-day belief, they hold just that the world is a closed system. 
The world is a closed system. And that God is somehow eliminated from that system. And so a lot of people still believe in God, don't they? I mean, if you go out on the street, hey, do you believe in God? Most people would say, oh, yeah, sure. And some even believe in Satan. But spiritual things oftentimes do not matter to these people. They don't look at spiritual warfare as something that's around us. And so when you, when you stop and you think about that, when you read this, this verse, it speaks of just that, that there's a spiritual war going on all around us. And so a lot of times, you know, we can't deny, when you look at the world, the poverty, we can't deny the oppression, you can't deny the hunger, injustice, the real problems that exist. But if the real problems of this world are merely material and visible and that's it, then why can't we solve them? (laughs) Do you ever think of that? Why can't we just fix this stuff? Algernon Swinburne called man this. He said, man is the master of all things. He's the master of things. Well, if he's the master of everything, then why can't he fix what's messed up around us? We need to realize that, you know what? We're not the master of all things. God is. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, tells us that we are in a spiritual warfare. It acknowledges that our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood. But it tells us against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 is acknowledging there is a spiritual battle going on every day. So when we come to verse 20, there's uh, James Montgomery Boyce points out here there's three surprises in this one statement where he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans 6.20, calls this a little devotional section with a prophecy and a prayer for grace. It is that, but there's a lot more here. You can't just skim over that, that verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's three things here that I want to point out. And we'll look at them in detail. But the first one is, is that the God of peace, think about it, should crush anyone. The God of peace should crush anyone. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. If he's a God of peace, why is he crushing someone? And then secondly, I want to look at the crushing of Satan should be under, not God's feet, but what's he say? Our feet. That's kind of interesting. And also, he says there that this crushing should soon happen. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible when you read that, that terminology, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, you can't help but think back, where was that spoken of before? It was back in Genesis, the very beginning, chapter 3. Adam and Eve had been given a place in the Garden of Eden, and God had been given had given them rule over the lower forms of what he created. They were to manage the earth that God had created. 
and they were free to do as they saw fit. They, he only gave them one exception. He said they could eat from any of the trees in the garden except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them very specifically, if you eat from that tree, what? You will die, period. No gray area, black and white. And see, this is what Satan picked up on. When Satan entered the garden, he approached the woman, as we know the story to go, in Scripture with the suggestion that if God had prohibited them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, if he placed even this one single restriction upon them, he might as well forbidden them from eating of any of the trees. You know, you can test this approach with your children. Put them in a room and put a chocolate cake, put a bowl of pudding, and put some cookies and maybe a bag of uh, gummy bears. Say, hey, you can eat all of it. You can eat whatever you want. The only thing you cannot eat, I don't want you to touch or eat that cookie. And you watch what happens. Inevitably, inevitably, they're drawn to what is forbidden. Well, Satan knows that. And his argument was basically that God cannot be good, nor can he have our best interests at heart if he makes any prohibitions whatsoever. And that's the world we live in today. There's even some in the church that feel that way. They live under this mantle of grace to the point where they feel they're free to do whatever they want because all their sins are forgiven anyway. So what's the difference? We have the idea today in society that we are allowed to do whatever we want. Well, this is the first of Satan's temptations. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, it was the temptation to doubt God's benevolence, to doubt God's goodness. And that's exactly what we have today in our society. People ask, if God really loves us, why doesn't he permit us to do whatever we want? The second temptation in the Garden of Eden was to question God's truthfulness. For when the woman replied, you remember, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan replied, if you look it up, with a flat contradiction. He told the woman what? You surely will not die. That's ridiculous. Why would you even think that? Well, whom was the woman to believe at that point? Well, as we understand what the text says back in Genesis chapter 3, she decided to trust her own observations. She decided to trust her own judgment. She decided to trust anything but the Word of God that was given to her directly. And as a result of that, she ate from the tree And then she passed it along to her husband. And guess what he did? He ate too. (laughs) I don't know if Adam had the same philosophy that many men do today. You know, happy wife, happy life. You know, whatever, I'll just go along with the flow. You know, men, that is not our role in life. We don't exist just to please our wives. 
That's not why we're here. That's part of it. It's a big part of it because you're married and we're called to respect and love our wives. But don't ever put your wife above God. Because if you're pleasing your wife but you're not pleasing God, guess what? You got a problem. And you better straighten it out pretty quick. And this is a temptation that people have even today. We're always tempted to, to what sounds good. You know, we're always tempted to trust our own opinions. And we forget that our opinion is what? It's affected by sin. The last time I checked, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all been tainted by sin to some degree. And we need desperately his forgiveness for our sin. So who are we to think that we are the one to make these kind of decisions? But that's exactly what we do. Sometimes we decide to obey our own opinion, our sin-affected, unjust rationale, rather than the very word of God that he has given to us. Well, the third temptation that Satan pointed out here, or or that uh, Boyce points out here, is that what actually turned Eve to disobedience. For Satan told her that God had placed the restriction on her because he did not want her and her husband to reach their full potential. Almost sounds like a word of faith kind of thing. You've got to reach your full potential. He said in Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of this fruit and your eyes will be open, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, Eve apparently desired to be like God, which is what Satan himself, remember, he tried to pull the same thing, right? He wanted to be like God, and that's what he was cast out of heaven for. It had disastrous consequences. Well, now he's using that same ploy on Eve. As it happened to Satan and the angels that followed him in his rebellion, disaster came upon our first parents as well. The Bible says their spirits, their spirits, that part of their beings that had communion with God died spiritually. And so what was the reaction? Genesis tells us that they hid from God. When he came into the garden later, hey, where are you guys? They were hiding. Their bodies began the process of death and eventually they did die. For as God said in his words of punishment spoken to man, dust you are and dust you will return. In addition to that, God punished the woman by subjecting her to pain in childbirth and made the man subjected to hard labor. Next time you're out weed in the garden, think about that, guys. But God made a promise here, too, in Genesis It came up in the midst of his judgment upon the serpent that had used, that he had used for these temptations. God cursed the the, the serpent, the Bible tells us, causing him to crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. Well, what did he look like before that? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We can ask God in heaven. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said this, I will put enmity... 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will, listen, crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is terminology that we find over in the book of Romans. This promise is known to theologians as the the first announcement of the gospel. The proto-evangelicum. It's the first announcement. This is the first time the gospel has ever been presented. It's a promise of peace with God. It has to be achieved by Christ's work. And see, in Romans 16.20, it speaks of conflict as well. Three areas of conflict between Satan and the woman, between Satan's offspring, that is those who follow him, and the woman's offspring, that is those who follow in her faith, and then finally, and most importantly, between Satan and Christ. So the reason I bring this up is because you see where this, we're in living in this material world, physical world, but there's a whole spiritual realm that's going on around us. And we know that Satan, what he did when he was able to strike Christ's heel, where was that done? That was done on the cross, right? He was put on the cross to suffer. And, and that, that hatred from Satan was poured out on Christ. It was shown to us as you read around Easter time, you know, the resurrection time, we read about what happened, the passion of the Christ, all that hatred that came from the religious leaders, all the mocking that came from the crowds, all the beatings that Christ endured, and eventually when he was terribly crucified on that tree, I can only imagine Satan was delighted with every detail because he thought he had triumphed. He thought he won. But even though he thought he won the battle, the Bible says that, no, he was only bruising Christ. It was not a defeat for Christ. It was a bruise. If you're playing in a football game and somebody tackles you hard and you bruise your thigh, that's a whole big difference than having your leg busted in half, right? Other than, on the other side, Satan's triumph turned out to be a, you know, a, a, a victory in a way because Christ did die on the cross. But I don't know what Satan was thinking when he finally saw his great enemy on the cross. He probably thought, forgot totally about the prophecy that was foretold all the way back in Genesis. You know, this is just a bruising. This isn't like a death blow. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that Satan is not on the winning team here. Even though we live in a world that's filled with spiritual powers that do things beyond our even comprehension sometimes, and they're constantly against us as Christians, we have to realize that, you know what, we're on the winning team. We're on a side that cannot be defeated. Paul wrote of this triumph more completely in the letter to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. 13 and 15, he says, God forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, listen, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities 
and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, called Satan the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. For although Satan is exceedingly knowledgeable and cunning, the Bible calls him an angel of light, he was also supremely stupid to suppose that he could outthink the all-wise God or overpower the Almighty. Now, when you stop and you think about those things, you begin to realize that, wow, this is, this is an extremely important statement that Paul was making here in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. First part of that, the God of peace will crush anyone, is kind of a problem. It seems it goes against the very statement. It's like somebody coming up saying, man, I really love your brother, and they punch you in the face. You'd be like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not showing me love. But the peacefulness of God is not a quality that God causes to avoid all conflict or hide from hostility. It's an attribute that makes peace where hostility existed before And so when, in verse 20, Paul says the God of peace, he's called the God of peace because he makes peace. Well, how does he do that? He makes peace. I mean, think about it. If you went to war to to create peace in the world, that almost seems like, well, wait a minute, you're going to war. Why are you going to war? Because there's people out there that want to kill you. There's an enemy out there. And so you have to go to war. You have to engage the enemy. And you're not going to have peace until the enemy is dead. See, that's one thing our own country even misunderstood when they were dealing with ISIS before. They thought, well, somehow if we can just give these people jobs, and if we can just kind of appeal to them and help them out, and that they'll love us. No. They're living in an ideology that is totally against what the Scriptures teach these people. They really believe what they're doing is a cause for, for uh, celebration in their own religion. That's why when you see these videos or you see news things where they blow up a building or they behead people, they're cheering. They think this is good. You know, think of the apostle Paul when he was Saul, right? He was a Jew, and what would he do? He'd go around a Pharisee, and what was he doing? He was killing Christians. He wasn't doing it because he was some psycho He was doing it because it was the right thing to do, because the Christians posed a threat to his Judaism. They were saying things that were totally against what the Pharisees taught. And on occasion, Jesus would even call out the Pharisees, calling them serpents and whitewashed tombs and all kinds of nasty things. And they were appalled at Christ. They were appalled at Christ's followers. So Paul, when he was Saul before he was converted, actually went out and killed Christians In the name of his God. So the idea that the God of peace should crush anyone is is when you understand the whole picture, it's a very needed thing. God will not allow our enemies 
to prevail. We were just reading last week in 1 Samuel. Chapter 15, I think it was, where God told uh, uh, Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites. Remember that story? Did they do it? No. (laughs) Came back to haunt them. It always comes back to haunt you. When you don't do what God expects you to do, and you stop and you say, well, how could God give such a command to go and kill an entirety of people? And one of the points that we shared with last Wednesday was, you know what? We have to be and understand that God created us. We didn't create God. So therefore, he is over all this. And if he says, go and and wipe these people out, he must have good reasons because we know God is holy. We know God is just. We know God is perfect. We know God is sinless. He couldn't do something wrong ever. But they couldn't understand that. And so whenever Israel was given that command to go wipe out an entirety of people, I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, male, female, children, livestock, everything should be wiped out. They never did it. And that would be a hard thing to do, frankly. It really would. But because of their disobedience, they had to pay a price. So God, the God of peace, will, has crushed Satan's head. The second thing here is that the crushing of Satan should be under our feet. A lot of times when we talk to individuals who come to Christ, they'll say, yeah, you know, I've been saved. Well, that's good. That's good. And we think sometimes that that is just a one-time deal. And we forget that our salvation is something that is really three tenses. You know, we have been saved from all of our sin. As we stand here today, as if we're Christians, if we trusted in the blood of Christ, if we trusted in his forgiveness, we are being saved, right? That's our sanctification. That's God making us more like Christ. And in the future, we will ultimately be saved one day. Because he will hold us fast. And when we speak of Jesus' victory over Satan... It's possible to say that Satan has been defeated, that he is being defeated, and that he will one day be defeated. Because the last time I checked, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, (laughs) right? You just look around. The first and the third of these victories has been or will be by the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We don't have any part in it whatsoever, but we do have a part in the second of these battles. Satan is being defeated. That's what Paul's talking about here, which is why Paul said the God of peace will soon crush Satan, what? Under your feet. How is Satan crushed under your feet? You ever think of that? It's a link between the text in Genesis and here. Paul just told the Roman Christians here in verse 19, I want you to be wise about what is good. I want you to be innocent about what is evil. He must have been thinking that Satan offered the knowledge of good and evil by getting Adam and Eve to do evil. 
And you know what? They didn't become like God, knowing good and evil. They became like who? Satan. (laughs) They fell. And what Paul desires of Christians, by contrast, is that they become like God in this area. That we know and we embrace what is good. And the way we do that in our lives is by shunning what is evil. Even though they'll be aware of its nature, we know it's all around us. It is when we live like this that God will use us to crush Satan under our feet. But when we give in to temptation and we actively are involved in sin, sinful behavior, behavior that doesn't honor Christ, we're not crushing Satan's head. We're kind of bandaging him up. (laughs) doesn't mean he's going to win. So this crushing of Satan has to do with our victory in the, the realm of the knowledge of good and evil. That's really what he's talking about here. In, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, the apostle John wrote of the, the victory of the saints over Satan. Here's what he said. He said, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word, listen, of their testimony. See, there's two parts to this victory. The first is achieved by Christ through the death on the cross. That's very clear. But there's a second part of this victory. The victory that is won by our testimony, what? To the truth of God. To this book that we hold so dear. It's God's victory. God is working in us, but it's also our victory because it's achieved by our testimony. And this is what Paul is saying. He wants us to understand that, that soon Satan, that God is going to crush Satan soon enough, but until he does that, it's up to us to crush him under our feet by living out our Christian lives, by doing what God expects us to do. Let us not forget that God has equipped us for this battle, right? He doesn't just, he's not just a, a captain of an army that's not giving us anything and sending us into battle. I mean, the world has its weapons, does it not? But they're not like ours. The weapons of the world are things like money, numbers, and uh, power, and politics, For years, the church thought somehow that it was going to change the world politically. So you had folks like the moral majority and concerned women for America. All delightful people, I'm sure. But it really did a disservice to the church. Because all of a sudden, the church started looking down a political path. Thinking that somehow if we just elect the right person, somehow God will be gracious to our nation. Now, there's a lot that, that weighs in the balances on, on who we elect and who holds office, for sure. And we need to do our due diligence as Christians when we go to the polls to vote for that individual who best represents what God would desire. But in the end, it's not going to be a political game. The people in Washington, D.C. are not going to stand before you when you stand before your God after you've long departed this earth 
and say, wait, no, he voted for me. You know, he's, he's, you know, you got to let him in heaven. No, you're going to only answer to one person. You're going to stand before God and he's only going to ask you one question. What did you do with my son? What did you do with that savior that I sent my son who died on that cross? And if your answer is, well, I thought he was a great guy. I thought wrong. Because the Bible says that unless you totally surrender everything you have and fall at the feet of Christ and turn away from your sin and turn to a Savior, you know what? There's no hope for you. There's no hope. What are you going to say? Well, God, you know, I I fed the homeless. That's not going to matter. The Bible says all of our good works outside of Christ are like filthy rags. They don't mean anything to anybody. And especially God. But what are our weapons? We don't have power, politics, money, numbers. Our weapons are this book, the Word of God. Our weapons are things like prayer. The Word of God carries within it the power of God to demolish arguments, to bring down strongholds. Prayer, because even with the word of God, it requires the regenerating power of God to open blind eyes in order to receive it. It's not just a matter of giving somebody a Bible and saying, okay, now they're saved. No, you can give somebody a Bible. They could throw it in the trash. Who knows? We need to be praying that God would take these messages over the radio airways, over, over messages that we hear here, over tracts that we give out as individuals, over our witnesses in our works, and somehow God would take those efforts and open the blind eyes of the men and women and children who need to hear the gospel. Because that's the only way they will be saved. They're not going to be saved by your slick presentation or your slick words or your nice little track you have or whatever. They're going to be saved because God saves them. God transforms them. God opens their eyes. And that's a very important part of this. So we have a part to play in this. It will be crushed under our feet. And then thirdly, he says the crushing is soon going to happen. The word translated there, when he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It has two meanings. Quickly or without taking much time. And near at hand. So the prophecy that God will soon crush Satan could either mean, number one, that when he does it, it will happen quickly. Or number two, the victory is just around the corner. Those who choose the second meaning sometimes suggest that Paul was mistaken because this was written, what, almost thousands of years ago, right? And and Satan is still not yet defeated, so he must have been wrong. Well, we know that's not to be true. But what is the victory about which Paul is writing here? I believe it's the victory of believers who live by the truth of God's word. And do the right and good thing in a lost and dying society. Regardless of whatever happens. Regardless of the consequences. Regardless of what may happen as a result of living for Christ. 
It says then, if you do that, the victory is imminent, it's constant, it's widespread, it's absolute. Because when you do the right thing, what happens? Who is glorified? God is glorified. What about Satan? Satan is just shown to be the failure that he is. So this victory is complete in itself. It doesn't need to be added to or taken away from. Nothing can diminish it. Nothing can draw us away from this. Every victory for us like this is a promise of the victories yet to come. See, every time you live a life and you're, maybe you're faced with a temptation later this afternoon and you say, you know what, I'm not going to give in to that temptation by the spirit and the power of God. I'm going to resist this and I'm going to move on. And you do that. You know what, that's just showing you that God is interested in giving you victories in this life. And that victory will lead to another victory. Every act of good in this life is a victory and it points to Christ's final victory. Every quiet triumph of faith over fear or pain in the hour of death is a victory, a defeat of Satan, whose ultimate but, ult- whose ultimate but ultimately ineffective weapon is death. In John 8, it tells us in verse 44 that Satan is a murderer, and he's been a murderer from the beginning. He's interested in death, in death alone. But guess what? When we come to Christ, did Christ die on the cross? Yes. But guess what happened? Three days later, (laughs) he was risen. He was risen from the dead. And he was risen from the dead because the Father looked at the sacrifice that Christ made and said, you know what? This is exactly what I needed. A perfect sacrifice. Christ was the perfect God-man. He was 100% man, 100% God, yet he never committed any sin while he lived here on earth. Not once did he sin. And so he was the perfect sacrifice. And he was able to take upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ and pay that. And when he did that, God was satisfied with his sacrifice, we know that because he was raised on the third day. It's kind of like when you give somebody a check. Well, until you deposit that check in the bank, you don't know if it's a good check, bad check, whatever. But once the, the bank clears that check, you're good to go. You got the funds. Leon Morris says this, the promise of this victorious issue, the idea that the defeat of Satan by Christ, undergirds the fight of faith. See, don't forget that Satan is our enemy, but guess what? He's also God's enemy. He's also God's enemy. And he is very fierce. But guess what? God is our champion. And he is the ultimate victor in this. Martin Luther wrote this wonderful hymn during the Reformation called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I just love this one Verse, it says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. 
Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. You know, fathers, if there's anything you need to hear today is do not grow faint. Do not grow timid. God expects you to be bold. As believers, he expects you to live out your life in the the secular marketplace where you work in a way that turns people's heads. He doesn't want you to go out there and just kind of blend in with everybody. That's not what he's called us to do. Christ even said that we're to be the what? The light of the world. We're to be salt of the earth. Both of those elements cause immediate change. You ever have a piece of meat that's just kind of bland? It's just, eh. Throw some salt in it. Man, it just opens it up. It's like, wow, this is really good. You go into a dark place. Somebody switches a light on. You could be standing in a museum with beautiful million-dollar paintings all around you. You would never know if you were in the dark until somebody turns the light on. And all of a sudden, what does that light do? It exposes the greatness all around. That's what we're to do here in this world in which we live. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. And, and Lord, we, we thank you that you are a God of peace, but we also thank you that you're willing to crush the head of our enemy. And, Lord, we pray that as we have a part in that each and every day, and, Lord, especially as men who are called to be the spiritual leaders in their homes, I just pray that we would be doing everything that we are called to do to live lives in a way that will be honoring to you. Help us not to give in to the, the temptation to compromise in order to just get along or the temptation just to blend in so we don't make any waves. Lord, you've called us to be just the opposite of that. And that even comes down, honestly, to our family units. Lord, as fathers, we're called to lead spiritually in our homes And sometimes today, especially in Christian homes, that role has just been negated. And unfortunately, the wife has taken over the leadership in that area in so many homes. And that grieves your heart. There's a role for all of us to play. But if the man in the household is not fulfilling his spiritual leadership, then the rest of the equation doesn't work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of repentance, that we would turn back to you. And you'd give us wisdom as how to be the, the spiritual leaders you call us to be. To be the example. To be the one who's walking and, and living for the Lord. As examples for our wives and our children, and even those around us. We pray that we would have a blessed day today. Pray you'd bless our food over in the fellowship hall as well after our last song. And and just uh, give us a good day. And if we haven't reached out to our dads yet, I pray that we would do that by phone or email, whatever. And just uh, thank them for their, their role in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.